Goldicott is more than a scenery-chewing space lizard war criminal who looks like Mitt Romney. He's one of the most complex villains in TV history. Talking about Ducat means talking about colonialism, fragile masculinity, and the interplay between mental health and morality. And this podcast, Deep Space Dive, is all about topics like these. Welcome to Deep Space Dive. This is the DS9 podcast brought to you by Graphic Policy Radio. DS9 is the Star Trek show with the greatest focus on political concepts like colonialism, feminism, queerness, and post-scarcity economics. Join hosts and guests who aren't just Trekkies, but activists, academics, therapists, and more as we do a deep dive into the text and subtext where few Star Trek podcasts have gone before. We'll be discussing Deep Space Nine's themes and characters not doing recaps. We should also warn you up front that this show does not go episode by episode. Instead, we, co- we go topic by topic, which means that every episode is full of spoilers. So if you're watching the show for the first time, we recommend getting to the end of the show and then going back into the archives where our whole show will be waiting for you. And I want to thank everyone who's spoken to us. Um, I, you know, We've had a bit of a hiatus for some fabulous... Uh, things and also less fabulous things. And it's been getting the outpouring of support from listeners, including a ton of people who I know peripherally and who are definitely not listening to the show just because they're my friends, um, has been interesting to hear as well. So thank you for that. Who the hell am I? Elon Levin, also the host of Graphic Policy Radio. I've worked at the intersection of comics, nerd culture, and social change for over a decade. Uh, My biggest Trek cred was giving a speech on fan activism at a rally organized by Lita, a.k.a. Chase Masterson. And I'm Sarah Daniel Rasher. When I'm not getting paid to use math to save the world, I write about film and figure skating. I was the founding captain of my high school Star Trek club, and I once got Nicole DeBoer to kiss me at a convention. Um, (laughs) And... By good news, we mean things like I got married in November and <laughs> and um, in true Jewish Trekkie tradition, um, we ended our ceremony with a traditional Jewish glass breaking at which everybody yelled Kapla. Kapla. There was kapla. just like really a lot of Jews shouting Kapla and nerds of various religious and ethnicities in one space. And it just made me very happy. <laughs> It was a beautiful wedding. You guys had an amazing speech. And Amy, I'm so excited you guys got married because Amy is wonderful. I love her. Um, um, Amy will. Amy's ideas will appear later in this episode. They will. It's true. Anyway, with all that said, let's dive into the bad guy we love to hate, Gold Ducat. Just the two of us, me and Alana, no guest this week. And in part, that's because, honestly, this is the first episode idea I even had when we talked about doing the podcast was just, I want to do an episode on attention. Like, I literally was like, Sarah, can I just do a podcast about attention, Bajoran workers? And I said, I thought we weren't doing an episode by episode podcast. And also the name of the episode is Civil Defense. Right, right. But it's one of the best episodes of the entire series. And through it, a Yukon episode. I mean, it's also a Garrick episode and kind of a Jake Sisko episode and not entirely not a Kira episode, but the Ducat moments are what people remember and that people meme. And there are so many <laughs> other episodes that Ducat just runs away with. And that includes both Emissary, the series premiere, and what um, and what we leave behind, which is the series finale. He's like the thread that runs through the entire series. That's so true. And He really is one of those characters who just arrives fully formed in a lot of ways. And while the character does 
you know, get developed and we hear, we learn more and the, he, he goes through various phases. Um, he did sort of arrive fully formed in some ways from the pilot and go on from there. Like even if he, when he begins, he's very much of a specific type. It's like such a great type to see in a, in, in a show as a bad guy. Yeah. It's, I mean, he walks onto the screen in Emissary when really half the actors don't even know what they're doing yet. It's mm-hmm. like we're like fully into like first season Dax. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> like this guy shows up and he's in the uniform and he's got that smirk on his face. And we're like, OK, we know exactly who this guy is. And just that sense of like he walks in. He is no he no longer has any authority here. And he's just very busy talking down to everybody. And like at the time, Next Generation is still fresh in a lot of viewers minds, too. And we're thinking like, OK, this is this show's cue. And instead of an all powerful being that just wants to fuck with everybody, we've got somebody who has no inherent power, who just wants to control everybody. And that sets mm-hmm. such a tone for the whole show. Ooh, good parallel. Yeah. And he really frames that this is a show that's going to be about, you know, politics in a very, uh, with a capital P, uh, in a way that's impossible to avoid because this is like this is a colonial power departing this massive death star space station um and you know we'll be back you you, you we're better than you haha <laughs> isn't this cute that you think you're going to survive and like i it's you know we how often does the federation get talked down to like that by anyone other than like i mean i guess that's not true vulcans do it and the romulans do it but i i don't know there's something specific about the way he presents it in that up in in that episode and then on and it is a very it's a it's a fascist chauvinist worldview that is like distinctly cardassian and 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 like just a wonderful thing to do in a star in a star trek universe And what's really interesting about it is, especially in those early episodes, like Odo and Quark in particular, keep looking at each other like, here comes the new boss. Let's hope it's not the same as the old boss, but it's probably the same as the old boss. Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly sort of watching the Starfleet characters and the Federation characters to like see if they're going to really just be a kinder, kinder, gentler form of colonialist fascism, or if they really are going to be sort of representative of our better selves. And I feel like it's almost another episode to talk about how the Federation is represented in Deep Space Nine, especially because that representation is a thing that I know a lot of original series and Next Generation fans have trouble with, even yeah. philosophically. But, like, I think one of the reasons Gold Dukat resonates so much in the early episodes is that he's sort of our point of comparison to, depending on how you look at it, either excuse any colonialist behavior that the Federation enters into or be like, here is what we're checking ourselves against. Like, Mm -hmm. 
if you notice a moment when Cisco starts doing this, how do you respond to it? If you notice a moment when Odo starts doing this, how do we respond to this as viewers? And like, that's more of the approach that I'd rather take today is like saying Ducat is like the worst case scenario that we're always checking our heroic characters against. Because he's, a, and this is really important to us, what we've spoken about is like, he is, this is not like a Nazi German fascist. This is an American fascist, a British colonialist. And like, that is, that's the kind of fascism he's presenting. Um, he's all like, oh, justifying everything as being for the good of the people he's oppressing. He's trying to say that he's the kinder, gentler ruler who actually wanted to things to be better for them. Why do they have to make it so hard for themselves? We're trying to save you from your own, you know, from your own ignorance, poverty. Like, I, you know, like I'm, this is just straight up, you know, white man's burden half the time, George W. Bush the other half the time. Um, to jump ahead to a question that somebody was asking us, like what political analogs we have, but like this, he, his particular way of talking about the Cardassian occupation of Bajor as something that was actually not so bad for the Bajorans, and it would have been good for them if they only listened to reason, is like, that's not an argument that Nazis were making about Jews. That's an argument Americans are making about all those countries that we overthrow the leadership of and turn into client states and steal the resources from. And that's, you know, like, that's the British colonial, like, credo, right? I definitely make other Trek fans mad at me when I'm like, no, stop saying space Nazis. I hate that. And they yeah. usually walk away uh, muttering things about like, you know, Zionism or something oh, when really God. the, um, my argument is much more, it's like, if you look at Bajoran culture as depicted on the show, it draws so much on um, Indian and other South Asian cultures um, and is drawing such a clear parallel between mm-hmm. um, between Britain and um, colonial India. Like, yep. if I really want to make people angry, I'm like, no, 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 it's not Israel and Palestine. It's the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Hell yeah. <laughs> I like the, I think like Americans don't want to like we they, they want to say the only fascists is like the Nazis and that's it. It's like no 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 we, this is not unique. Um, so like I think you know they're definitely the Cardassian has v- visual cues that might be connecting back to both Japanese imperialism and like Nazi German aesthetics, but. This is not he he this is not that fascist. This is this is the um, a much closer to home fascist for those of us from the English speaking nations. And there's definitely people who have picked up on that really strongly. Like mm-hmm. there's um a Twitter account that got started right around when Trump got elected. Yeah. That's called that's real gold ducat. They're still active. Um, and basically they make as few changes as they can to like various right wing propaganda statements and catchphrases. Um, and you know, things like make Cardassia great again type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And what's wonderful about that Twitter account is that they change one word and it's like, yeah, that's what's going on here is we've basically got a bunch of Cardassians trying to take over our country. 
Um, there was also a fairly recent Tumblr post that I sent to Alana that was somebody musing on, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going to just summarize. But it's like, sometimes I think about like, what does it mean if you're like just somebody who owns a restaurant on Cardassia and politics don't really affect you? You're just trying to run a business. And then I sort of looked at myself and went, oh, shit. And I mm -hmm. feel sometimes as an American, um, like, I am that small business person. I am just trying to wake up in the morning and do my best. And like, how much of what we're fighting is really akin to like, being a random Cardassian civilian. Yeah, I, I think honestly, like the best window into Gul Dukat's psychology, political philosophy, I should say, is that monologue he gives in The Waltz, which is the episode, I for once remember the name of something, uh, where where Sisko and Dukat are quote unquote stranded um, on a, a, a rock in space together. And like the monologue he gives to Sisko justifying the occupation and how he wasn't really the bad guy is that's him. Um, I literally have the entire monologue pasted into our show notes, but I am going to spare you my acting performance and just remind you, go, go watch that clip online. And I feel like sometimes people almost want to argue against the text and come up with excuses for him. And like the show does not give excuses for them. He is very clear on what his philosophy is, you know, like it's, it's right in there. We, you know, they want uh, the, from the moment we arrived on Bajor, it was clear that we were the superior race, but they couldn't accept that. They wanted to be treated as equals. And Cisco being like, and you hated them for it. And it's, uh, and, and working him up into admitting that he really wished that they had just killed them all because it would have, it would have been easier. And like, and then leaving him with no self justification left to, uh, to point to. Um, and I, one of the things that I just find so maddening in how people talk about Gul Dukat sometimes is they take him at his word in which he insists that, you know, he was the kinder, gentler oppressor because he in increased how much people were getting fed. He says, we don't even know that that was fucking true. Um, and they just take him at his, as, as an aside to point, regardless of like questions of freedom or oppression. Um, they take him at his word there. And it makes me think of, like, you know, he's very, like, just following orders. I'm just trying to have a functioning empire because it would be bad if the empire wasn't functioning. That would be bad for everyone. And it reminds me to how some people were charmed by Christoph Waltz's performance in in Inglorious Bastards. And Christoph Waltz is always saying, like, look, I don't hate Jews. I'm just very good at my job. So that's what I'm out there, you know, I'm hunting Jews because that's that's my skill and that's my job. And people literally, because his performance is so charismatic, have like echoed this. Like, well, he's not really a Nazi. He doesn't really believe that. He's just and I'm like, just because you're horny for a male authority figure who's charismatic doesn't mean that they're not the bad guy, guys. Like, yeah. like, what, I, like really, like the key to writing a great villain is to make them the hero of their own story their own in story. their own mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's one of the things that's great about Dukat is like all of his big speeches about, you know, like guiding the Bajorans towards a better future. Like he fully believes that. He fully believes that like he's 
saving the galaxy by like taking pity on the poor Bajorans and enlightening them with, you know, Cardassian culture and technology. And it's one of the things that links most of the Cardassians on the show and the big exception mm-hmm. is the Cardassian scientists and destiny and the look on their faces when they get served Cardassian food and they're like, oh my God, this stuff is terrible. Please bring us some Bajoran food. Mm-hmm. Um, but like this, uh, this like belief that I think as Americans, you and I are both very familiar with, it just gets drilled into you. That's really hard to shake that like your culture and your country or your planet are the best in the world. And it's really hard to stop thinking in those terms even as you become really disillusioned with things that are happening in the place that you're from. Yeah. You know, don't don't fall for him, for God's sake. But I think it speaks to how well he's written that people find themselves susceptible to that. Yeah. And the thing about, like, um, Ducat's colonialism in particular, and a lot of the speeches where he is very self-righteous, is if you sort of break them down, his um, his colonialist thinking is really often an excuse for, like, his raging horniness. Um, yes. Which is the, the, the point that my lovely wife, um, <laughs> who is at the other end of the apartment and can't hear me talking about how lovely she is, um, <laughs> was bringing up she's like yeah all of his like philosophical posturing is an excuse for thinking with his dick an excuse for like chasing around Bajoran women yeah break break that down a little bit more because I think it's very true but I want people to like get it so we there's the one flashback episode where Kira becomes basically her own mother and and sort of tells this story of Bajoran com- comfort women during the Cardassian occupation. And it's a fairly ham-fisted episode, but mm-hmm. the idea of it is really cool and it really reveals how um, Ducat gets very high and mighty about like, oh, I'm helping you. I'm giving you more food. I'm giving you this like pleasant environment and all you have to do is sleep with me. And aren't you flattered that like you're the one I picked? Um, and just like his sense of paternalism is so tied to like being attracted to Bajoran women in Mm -hmm. a way that he doesn't really seem to be attracted to Cardassian women. And he's a guy with a wife and a bunch of kids too, where Mm -hmm. his wife finally leaves him when Zial shows up. Um, But like, and you get the impression that like divorce is pretty rare in Cardassian culture. And that sense that, and it's like, there's so many real world analogs, um, not just of like, you know, colonialist, paternalist fascists. But like, there's an element to Ducat where he's just like that guy who, you know, like spent six months as a missionary in Latin America and like talks all day about his, his, his like life changing experiences in Mexico. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's exactly. Like, even to the point of like the way he pronounces Bajor as like Bajor, like it's got that little bit of like, <laughs> I'm purposely tweaking this pronunciation in a way that nobody says it, including Bajorans, to right. like prove that like I'm up on their culture. And then like, and yeah, and like everybody just kind of looks at him like, 
yeah, you go with your waifu shit. Mm-hmm. Very apt. Um, I I want to re- reflect back on that Kira's mom episode. So one of the, I feel like so the the one the the DS Nine documentary, the one we left the ones we left behind, is wonderful and everybody should watch it. But one of the things that I really took from it was a lot about for me about Goldukata and Marco Limo. So if folks are not aware, the reason why this whole thing is with Kira's mom was because. Mark uh, really wanted there to be some, he felt, Mark felt like there was sexual tension between him and Kira. Excuse me, as we all take a brief vomiting pause and return. Um, And so the um, uh, Nana Nana Visitor, being a genius, determined that the best way to prevent that from happening was to have this whole sequence that had an episode idea that he wanted it with like, to have it be about her mom so that way he could, I mean, it's true. So I think like, we should take in canon that, yes, he is trying to impress and fuck her, but like, thank, but like, but her, her meaning Kira, but that the, the, the flashback episode shows his relationship with her mom. And that was a way to make this plot line not have to happen, to not have Kira have to have like a gold Ducat, will they, won't they situation, which would have probably made us all again, just really violently ill. Um, so it was interesting to me to hear Marco Limo say, oh, I thought we had really great sexual tension together when I'm like, I don't know how I can talk to you now. <laughs> like, you guys have amazing chemistry, but that's not that kind of chemistry. Um, the, the other piece that I really got from it, and th- I mean, this is just, and I apologize if I'm not like paraphrasing it perfectly, because, you know, I know this is like a real person, but I'm pretty confident he's not listening to this here. So the person who's like literally narrating and making the documentary is Ira Stephen Bayar, right? And so he's sitting with, with Mark Alimo and Mark's like, you know, it's so interesting talking with you guys now. It's frustrating because like, I didn't have a, at the time, I had no idea that you, what you thought about my performance. You guys never said anything to me. And Ira's like, Mark, we, we kept having you back. That's that's how you know we liked you is we kept finding reasons to put you back on the show. And part of me is like, I sympathize with his need to have somebody tell me good job. But also like it, it does make sense. If we didn't think you were doing a good work, we wouldn't keep writing you into the show. But that combination of needing to have somebody spell out their approval for you so clearly, I just was like, go do count, ladies and gentlemen, because he's all about like needing to be loved and needing to be respected and feared by everybody. And I just really associate them and like, you know, the actor and the character. I'm sure he is not a, like a terrible creep, like, <laughs> like Goldukat is, but I felt like there is, there is something of Marco Limo in the character there that I had not necessarily expected to see if that makes sense. Oh yeah. It's um he does, he comes off, he doesn't come off as like a dangerous creep. And no, God knows no. there are other people involved in Deep Space Nine's production that have subsequently come off as dangerous creeps. Like, mm-hmm. and he does, like, he's a, uh, he has a long career as a character actor. He'll like show up for a scene in movies and you'll just be like, oh, hey, um, it's Gold <laughs> Um And like, clearly he has range beyond this, but there's definitely yeah. moments in that documentary where you see him and you go, oh, yeah, like, there's, there is some, he is drawing from his own personality in the way that he he's performing this character, and he might not even be aware of the ways in which that's informing it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And like, that's not a criticism. That's actually a compliment. Like most good actors bring more of themselves than they really realize they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, and it's also just like, but it's really, there's a reason like he's not just um, the creator of one of the two most famous Cardassians in the (laughs) Star Trek universe. He also is the creator of Cardassians in a certain way because yep. he is the main Cardassian in the Next Generation episode, The Wounded, which is my favorite episode of the Star Trek The Next Generation. And not totally just because it. it's basically an episode of Deep Space Nine. Um, <laughs> it's an O'Brien episode about Cardassians. Um, but I mean, yeah, hi. Yeah, the Cardassian in that episode is Mark Alimo with a very ridiculous mustache. It's so, so ridiculous. But the neck is there. And that's the yeah. thing. Like the, the actual makeup design was based on what would work on Mark Alimo. And that's why he looks like such a perfect Cardassian. They're like, okay, this guy's got a long neck. What could we do with that? And the whole, you know, like the, I love the Cardassians are so struck upright that they have two backbones. And Mark Alimo has enough neck that you can put two backbones on him and it doesn't look ridiculous. Like three, a total of three backbones. So and it doesn't look ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. And, and he's large and menacing. Like he's just like looking right. down on you in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, it's one of those where it's like the cast overall is tall and he finds a way to loom over almost everybody. Oh, um, yeah. Just totally. that's the presence he has. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and and it's too like the character he plays in The Wounded is significantly different from Gul Dukat. Like, mm-hmm. but there's something he created that sort of like arrogance and presence that basically all of the other actors playing Cardassians from there on out sort of took as a cultural element as well as a character element and found ways to adapt. Like, I think Andrew Robinson is on record saying that he did watch what Mark was doing to sort of figure out like what continuity he could create to be like this is a very different kind of person but it's somebody who comes from the same culture i their moment i really think one of the moments where you in an you know in an earlyish season where you really finally understand how garrick is a good spy because remember like garrick shows up on the space station and and he's like hey and he's like, yeah, sure, I'll get lunch with you, like, you know, cute young doctor. And, you know, I mean, you'll be intrigued by me because I may or may not be a spy. Um, the mo- so you're kind of like, how good of a spy is this guy who everybody thinks is a spy? And then in that moment in Attention Bajor and Workers, um, when they are, when they're, um, when, when, when Garrick and Dukat are at the, t- everybody's in the, you know, in ops together trying to stop the laser guns from firing everywhere. And, and Garrick just disrupts him and is like, you know, it's not going to work. And everything just sort of halts while, you know, where and where, where as Garrick calls Dukat out on trying to machismo himself in front of Kira. Garrick, knowing exactly how to defang Dukat in that moment by pointing out his desperation and horniness, basically, and undermining it by calling attention to it is when you're like, oh, you know, OK, yeah, Garrick is good at this. Garrick's good at this. Um, and I think it's such a telling moment in the show, too, because I feel like I probably didn't read when I was first watching the show as a younger person. I don't know that I read Dukat's behavior posturing in front of everybody as being dick wagging in front of Kira, per se. And so as a young person who might not have understood those connections, Garrick, like putting an exclamation point on it, helped me understand what was really going on and sort of this connection between 
the chauvinism and and like his uh, you know performance of masculinity and like what he was trying to do in that scene and his like performance of masculinity for Kira as a Bajoran woman is really distinct from his his sort of chauvinistic behavior in front of the Federation. He is like the only straight dude on the show who isn't horny for Dax. Um, mm-hmm. That's an, yeah, that's an interesting point. Like that's true. he sees um, the Federation species um, in a very different way than he sees Bajorans and is sort of like gross paternalistic toward them, but in a, in a way that's distinctly less sexual. Um, that he's very, very, very straight coded. And by straight coding, it's more of that thing. Like, I actually have seen a really good discussion. Yeah, again, probably Tumblr. This is where these things happen. Um, <laughs> of how William Riker from Next Generation is probably bisexual when you really think about it. But he's straight coded in just the way he performs his masculinity. Um, and that... Most of the other aliens on Deep Space Nine are either queer coded or POC coded or both. Mm-hmm. So, like, you get Garrick clearly queer coded, but you also get like Quark, who is straight coded, but also coded as a person of color in relation to what has sort of the white coding within the show. And then you get folks like Odo, who are both POC coded and queer coded. Ducat is possibly the only major alien character who is coded as very straight, both in terms of his actual desires and in his like gender performance and his performance of sexuality. And as an analog for white behavior and, you know, how people treat white people and how white people perceive themselves rather than as an analog for um, some variation on how um, BIPOC are either sort of received or perceive themselves. Yeah. Which is one of the things that's interesting is when he straight up becomes a cult leader. I definitely had not seen that coming. And it made so much sense. Because the connect, you know, like a fascism ego to like worship me mentality. Yeah, that that person wants to be a cult leader. Um, It's disturbing how effective he is at that, at getting folks to fall in line for him there. Um, And I find that particular storyline for him to be really interesting. But it's, it's, I mean, Sarah, do you feel like, is he in those moments? Is he a true believer the whole time? Is he a true believer? Not at all. How How do you think he feels? Just in the context of the whole final season of the show, I feel like he's got to be a true believer in the sense that he believes the Pachraths are gods, but he's not like a true believer in everything he says, if that makes sense. Yes. Like yeah, I, that, that yeah. sounds right. Yeah. Like he believes that 
you know, the Padres want him to be their emissary. He does not believe he's leading the Bajorans who are following him to, like, a better life. He believes that he wants people to, like, say how great he is. He doesn't believe that the baby has been transubstantiated into looking like him. He believes that. And he doesn't believe that he should commit suicide with the rest of his cult members. But mm. he, and, but the reason it is he's so invested in being the chosen one. I think in a reality where Gold Ducat doesn't develop a Cisco obsession, Gold Ducat does not decide to become a cult leader. I, you know, because I, you know, the whole cult thing, that comes after his after Waltz, where he has his real, like, wrestling physically and mentally moment with Cisco, and where it becomes incredibly clear that, like, Ducat's whole thing is trying to get Cisco to see him as an equal, which, of course, he's not. That, of course, the next step for Ducat in trying to be as good, to, in trying to be better than Cisco is to become a cult leader himself, because he doesn't understand that Cisco isn't a cult leader. Cisco is a, re- is a reluctant religious figure, which is not the same. Yeah. So it's, I mean, the way that I want, that I keep going back to, because I just rewatched Covenant, which is the, mm-hmm. you know, cult leader so episode, and it's so it's good. better than I remembered. I was like, I think I texted yeah. you after I watched it. I was like, hey, I never really thought anything about this episode. Now I'm rewatching it and I'm like, damn. It's um, one of the best episodes, I think. Uh, it's yeah. certainly the one, one of the best episodes of the final season. The thing that stands out about the whole incident with the baby is that he he doesn't believe that the baby transubstantiated in the womb. What he, but he, what he does believe is he slept with this woman. The woman's the woman's husband also slept with her, and then the Pareds chose for that baby to be his rather than the husband's. Oh, interesting. So, like, yeah. he believes that like there is divine intervention in that choice. He, but he doesn't believe it's a miracle. He believes it was like the gods, you know, flipping the switch in Schrodinger's box, kind of. But it's and it's so true to cults that he's like, we forswear sex, except I had to make an exception because I need to have sex. So now we have a justification theologically for why some people can have sex. Like, that's just how they build these things. And you brought up the connection to Cisco, which in so many ways is a contrast with Ducat and where, first of all, Cisco fathers two children one of them before the series and one of them right at the end of the series. Both of those children are in the context of really loving relationships and really reflective of what a good father and what a good husband he is. In terms of how he views family and how he views love, there's just this like lack of ego to it. And one of the great things about the Cisco and Jake relationship that I'm sure we will get into in future episodes um, is that sense of like when Cisco's love for Jake starts to be about his ego, that a lot of those stories about how are about how Cisco's ego gets brought back into check mm. in relation to his fatherhood. And it's one of the reasons everybody and especially a lot of the black viewers who see 
um, Cisco is such a powerful role model for black masculinity and black fatherhood. Um, like it's such a contrast with Ducat because it's so compassionate and it's so egoless. Um, and Ducat, which in our notes, the sentence I believe is worst father in Star Trek, worse than Worf, mm-hmm. <laughs> is because Ducat's family behavior is so tied to ego no matter what he does one of our listener questions was why did he really disown his daughter because it was it wasn't politically expedient for him to acknowledge her i mean i just can't think of any other explanation for it i mean but it is interesting the whole like if he really the minute he tells kira he's going to kill her you know that like, that's not going to happen. So I'm not sure why he said that to Kira. Yeah, it's, um, I rewatched the one, too, which, you know, in the long list of episodes that we have either renamed or just, or just talk about as the one where, because, like, episode names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the, the grand list of attention patrol workers, cave girl Molly, and the baseball one. Like, yeah. that is how we name, name episodes in our minds. But the one We where, know what we mean. You know what we mean. Yeah. <laughs> where he's on the Cardassian freighter with Kira and they capture the uh the the Klingon bird of prey and he's got Zial with him and it's the one where Zial goes to live on Deep Space Nine so she can go have a have Oh a- no it's not it's not a bird of prey it's from um their uh, the ice bee people who don't talk No no no, no. They, they capture a Klingon bird of prey in this one I just watched it Oh oh sorry yeah. okay yeah. yeah you're thinking of something else Yeah no they rescue her from the Breen but this is later yeah. when when um Zial is already like with Ducat. I will look it up and I will find out what it's called. But um but where he keeps framing his feelings for Zial in terms of like like he says he loves her, but it becomes increasingly clear throughout the episode first to Kira and then gradually to Zial and to a degree to Damar, who I want to get to in a minute, that like when he what he frames as love is really about like, this is a person in my life who hasn't had a reason to hate me and idolizes me and I'm going to hang on to her while she still thinks I'm awesome. Right. And as soon as Zial starts to have doubts about him, like she's no longer useful to him as a way to feed his ego. Mm, That's really that's really legit. When she becomes her own person, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I think also like, but just getting back to his obsession with Cisco, I mean, it's impossible to not view that through a lens of race. Right. Like, you know, Cisco is become sort of a pseudo Bajoran in Dugald Dukat's eyes in the way that he has been embraced by the Bajoran people in a way that, of course, Gil Dukat never could be. Um, and so he's like, how dare this, like, pseudo-Bajoran be the hero here and the holy, you know, the person who gets all this respect. He just, he constantly wants, is it views himself in competition with Cisco, And obviously they're set up as parallels in a lot of different, they're set up as foils in many ways but Dukat constantly trying to live his life in a dick measuring contest against Cisco is it's 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 not that's race right and it kind of reminds me of how 
Trump was so obsessed with just pissing on everything Obama did just to make it smaller because he couldn't bring himself to accept that a black man had achieved something beyond what he could ever do, you know? Yeah, and it's Cisco has everything that Ducat wants, and Cisco mm-hmm. doesn't want it. There's like multiple scenes throughout the series of like somebody coming up with like like asking Cisco to bless their child, and Cisco going like, "Oh, fine, I guess I'm still the emissary," and like that's Ducat's dream. Avery Brooks has been so aware of and so insistent about foregrounding the Afrofuturist and anti-racist aspects of being a Black captain that, like, one of the things that I think Marco Limo does really well is play off what Brooks is interested in, in being like, yeah, the best way I can support this as a villain is to be the patriarchal colonialist nightmare that has resulted in racism. Yeah, perfectly said, perfectly said. The, my, I, I, this is jumping a bit ahead to the end, but it just feels natural to bring up here that like my, my complaint with the way the story ends is like through the whole show, you're sort of seeing Dukat trying to say that he's an equal, if, if that he's equal to or better than Cisco and the show being like, yeah, no, not so. But by having the end, basically him and Cisco and Dukat kind of going down in the struggle together is sort of like the show saying they're equals. Like one is the dark side, one is the light side. But really what I want to see is like, Ducat isn't even worthy of being pissed on by Cisco. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel a little bit like it puts them too much as equals with one being good, one being evil versus one of them being a completely bog standard fascist leader who is one of, you know, thousands of people like him versus a truly unique individual who is Cisco. Am I, am I explaining this clearly? Oh, absolutely. It's I mean okay. one of the, one of the notes that we had is how how do we wish his story would ha- would have ended? And it was like it, that was something that you put in our notes, and I was like, I haven't really thought about that. But like, it's just sort of assuming that we're all dissatisfied with how Ducat's arc ends, and we are. And you really put the point on it that the reason is that what the show has illustrated consistently is that Ducat operates under the illusion that he and Cisco are equals and Cisco's just like, and who are you? The Bajoran people are also kind of like, and who are you? Um, and as I'm thinking about like, okay, so Ducat is the cue of Deep Space Nine in the idea that he's the villain or the antagonist who, you know, send in your letters about how Q isn't a villain, but um, that he's sort of the running antagonist that bookends the series that like, I would much rather him still be out there somewhere at the end of the series. And this idea Mm. that like he, the threat has been from him has been neutralized in some way, but that like, you can't just have like a star Wars battle against the ongoing specter of, colonialist fascism like colonialist fascism is still going to be on a freighter somewhere yeah 
Exactly. Exactly. Like, I don't want us to take him seriously as a genuine religious figure, because the point is that he's not. The point is that he's pretending not, he believes it, but the point is that this is part of his pretension and part of his unwillingness to accept that he's actually not that important and he's actually not the great savior. Yeah. And it's making him the focus of the last battle. It's like, I think that Kai Wynn should be the focus of the last battle. Thank you. Yeah. Which is, you know, save this for the future Kai Win episode to some extent, but what were you going to say? I was going to say, no, that's the thing. Exactly. Like, I'm much more comfortable having her be a foil for him in that moment than having it be Dukat. But I, I love your observation about them, Sarah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, you really, like, it's, it goes back to that, like, one of our complaints a lot of the time about depictions of racism and colonialism and fascism is that they wrap up the narrative with this image of those forces being defeated. And I feel like an image of those forces being defeated is really is at odds with a lot of what Deep Space Nine at its best says about that stuff is always present. Like the Federation is in many ways an awesome place to live, but it's still kind of colonialist. And Quark is the best at pointing out when that happens. Like, mm-hmm. thank you, Quark. Thank you, yep. Quark. Thank you, Quark, for being right a lot. Thank you, Armin, Armin Shimmerman, for get, making sure that stuff made it to the screen. <laughs> Yeah, that it lands right. So one of the things that, and again, credit to to my wife, Amy, for getting me here is, so the only consensual sex Ducat has in seven seasons, at least on screen, is with Kai (laughs) Wynn. And I guess my question is, since he initially approaches her under false pretexts as a Bajoran, is that, that's not even consensual. Well... Um, there's some, there, there's some gray dubcon issues there, but like <laughs> she's consenting in the moment. Yeah. But it's just such a false repeat. Like, you know, but that's the thing as much as I fucking hate her and she's evil, like she would not have sex with. She actual... says she wouldn't have. Like when she finds out, yeah. she says yeah. she wouldn't have, but like it's closer to consent than he ever gets from anybody That is else. true. It is closer to consent than he's ever experienced. Oh my God. It's almost, it's, it's a great illustration of how some men don't really have even have a conception of what consent means because Mm -hmm. they've never had anything that was even close to consensual sex. Oh, I wanted to cover too, since we're, while we're still kind of on the subject of Cisco, that the analog, that he also contrasts with other Cardassians on the show. And that, again is both savvy writing and part of one part of one of deep space nine's great strengths which is giving mm-hmm. multiple characters of the same species who are very different from each other in order to illustrate even if a society is a world of hats like there's going to be different <laughs> people in it and they're going to be interesting and they're going to play off each other and it's also really a credit to the two other really major cardassian characters on the show which are Garrick and Damar so it's a credit to Andy Robinson and Casey Biggs for the way they performed those characters that both of them really I mean I'm leaving out um a Nobrentain but that's oh, a whole yeah. different story but that both Garrick and Damar really 
play off of uh, Ducat in interesting ways. The reason I wanted to follow this up on Cisco was that the same way that Ducat's paternalistic posturing towards Cisco comes off as racist, when he's doing it towards Garrick, it comes off as homophobic. Right. Yep. It's so fucking masterful. And then with Damar, who is coded Ducat as straight and white, although that's complicated in kind of the final arc where he defects, that he's really set up as like Ducat thinks Damar is going to be his protege. And Mm -hmm. Damar, in all kinds of ways, in like everything he does, is trying to desperately to like look at what Ducat did and not be that guy (laughs) like he's the one that's gonna just cooperate with the Dominion until that's a really bad idea and gets him really addicted to alcohol and really questioning his life and then it when it starts to really damage his mental health he shifts his thinking it, which is such a contrast to Ducat, who no matter what happens to Ducat, Ducat never changes his worldview. Yeah, even through all of his phases, his worldview remains the same. What do you think of his like becoming mentally unstable sort of story storyline? Like, I think like dramatically, like it plays for some of the best episodes, like Walt is incredible. But at the same time, from just sort of a disability perspective, it really bothers me that it plays into those tropes of evil as mental illness. That it's like, it's another way to make him Draco Malfoy in leather pants, where it's like, oh, (laughs) he's not, you're laughing at things that like, I just think of as part of fandom. (laughs) <laughs> he's Draco Malfoy in leather yeah. pants. He's 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 not a villain. He's just misunderstood. Understood. He's not but a no, bad I, guy. He's... he's just mentally ill. But it's like speaking as the both of us having a history of mental health issues. Like didn't turn us evil. I hope. Um, well, I mean, I think that's what's key. It's like I could see somebody reading the show that way, but the show is clearly saying to you. Well, he's the same person the whole time. He was evil before he had a personality break. He was evil during his personality break, and he is evil after. So, like, you know, yeah, like, he loses his shit for a little while and is, like, seeing... And all the voices he normally hears in his head suddenly find themselves personified by different people from his life criticizing him, which is a wonderful device in how the show uses it. Um I I don't think that undermines any of him, like, actually just being evil, too. Because you can be evil and have a mental break, and it doesn't mean that you aren't evil, you know? Um, so I get to people making that argument, but they're wrong and should stop. Um, you know, I, I actually wasn't crazy about him going around the bend as a choice, like, because I was like, man, they have everybody lose their shit. Like, that's so overplayed, whatever. I think the show handled it better than most, but on balance, I could have done without. I, I mean, the the only... Other than just having it have produced some really great episodes. Which I think they could have done anyway, to be clear, is what I'm saying. My only defense of it is, and this has been noted by many other people, like everybody on Deep Space Nine is desperately in need of therapy. Oh, yeah. And it's amazing that more people on Deep Space Nine don't have major mental health breakdowns 
during the course of the show and also considering the 90s environment and the way mental health was seen at that time like it's actually impressive that there was as much acknowledgement as there was of the traumatic effects of what Cisco experiences and what mm-hmm. O'Brien experiences in particular, even if those aren't explored consistently. And then, you know, things that we want to discuss in our future, you know, defensive Esri Dax episode one of Mm -hmm. the great things about Esri Dax coming onto the show is this like finally we have a mental health professional (laughs) yeah I mean the other piece is like you know even if you are in perfect mental health if you watch your daughter get shot in front of you you will lose your shit so that is not like oh he's evil because he's mentally ill it's like no he had a mental health crisis because something that would make anybody lose their mind happened in front of him so it's not a defense of him, his behavior at all. Like, of course, he lost his shit. Anybody would. Yeah. Um, even if you tried to kill your daughter, you know, that was his plan. That was he was good. She belonged to him. Therefore, he could kill her when someone else kills her. Well, she was his property. And that's um, a break of his own sense of self and ownership. So, of course, he's going to lose his head. Yeah. Um, and when you put it that way, it makes a lot more sense and is really consistent with the approaches toward mental health when the show does approach mental health and i'm remembering now oh the other person whose mental health is really explored garrick so um yeah yeah um that when it does explore that it's really consistent in saying yeah like trauma causes damage to your mental health one of the uh, a listener question we got from mfs that i mean we hinted on it but i want to like really hammer this in because i think it's a central question um question that listener mfs sent in was um what are we to make of gul dukat's the occupation would have been worse without me defense there's a lot of people who say that in various contexts um including a number of bajoran collaborators like i'm thinking yep. of some of the people odo encounters in necessary evil aka the film noir one where there's so much talk about oh, I made the occupation better for XYZ in this way. And I, it starts to sound after a while, and Kira backs this up in some of the things she said, that it's like it was a way for people to like get through the day-to-day of it as being like, we are in this terrible situation and we're going to justify our jobs by saying we made the occupation a little better. And, you know, my, my thing is like, I, I think he thinks that he, I don't think it's something that we should accept as true just because he said it. And just from, from beyond, like one, like I said earlier, why would we take him on his word on even a literal level of what he did or didn't do? Right. Like, why would we believe he says that he reduced the workload by X percent? Why would we believe him on that in the first place? Because when his own self-interest is so tied up in being seen as the white savior, why would, like, of course he's going to say that and tell himself that. Why would we believe him? Now, let's pretend that he genuinely did succeed in reducing the the workload that the the workers have. It still was in service of the maintenance of uh, uh, of the system. So, no, that's actually not better. That's just the same. Yeah. Um, because, like, it's sort of like you actually, it, 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 it doesn't 
that's a tactic that often people will use in response to uprisings in order to maintain control. So it's not actually about the kindness of their own hearts anyway. It's a res- it's a self-preservation response to an uprising. Yeah, and it's also like it's something that I feel like people in positions like yours and mine in our everyday lives as Americans who are in some genuine way really trying to make the things that are wrong with American society a little more tolerable for people um, that we have to look at and say, like, am I doing this at the expense of real change or am I doing this in the service of real change? And all of those illustrations on Deep Space Nine of people who are, um, you know, making things a little more comfortable at the expense of really accomplishing anything. It's a pretty powerful illustration of how to preserve the status quo rather than fight against it. Great. That's really great. Um, Um, We do have some other really cool um, listener questions that we got on Twitter mostly. Um, One of them. So the first part of the question, which we're, which we are going to respectively punt to a future Zial episode, which we promise to have is that just asking for thoughts on Zial and our feeling when we were sort of looking at this is like, yeah, You've got to talk about Zial on her own terms because she has relationships with more people than Ducat. And she is, for as much as she's an imperfectly rendered character, she is a whole person unto herself. And I think that's the best way we can respond to questions that equate her as an extension of Ducat's arc is like, no, you've really got to treat her as a whole person, maybe even more than the show does. Um, Yeah. And then part two of Meredith Clark's question was, what are your favorite of of uh, Gulducat's stages. Hers is the horny for Major Kira uh, phase. Um, Sarah, what is your favorite of his phases, of his stages? My Honestly, my favorite of his stages, um, and it's mostly because I wished it had lasted longer, was his, like, I am a vigilante for the Cardassian way and I'm gonna go off and be, a, be more of a Cardassian than the other Cardassians, both because, mm. like, space pirate Gul Dukat is hilarious and both and because there's something you know going back to stuff we've said earlier about like no matter what happens to Gul Dukat his worldview is like thoroughly intact and yes I feel like the purest expression of that is like who are you when you have nothing and so Dukat is really interesting when he is out of favor and like which of his values he really clings to in those situations. It's a great answer. I'm not sure for me, like to me, like in some ways it is him as we find him, the recently deposed smarmy, convinced he'll be back any week now, like petty motherfucker from the, you know, from the beginning of the series because, but that's just because that heart of him does remain true throughout. I do enjoy the other the other parts of his journey, especially like cult leader Ducat. But, you know, there's a reason why I'm like, oh, my God, Sarah, we have to talk about civil defense. And that's because it is such a moment for how he views himself and him teleporting himself directly into ops and and walking like he owns the place, him having the bomb, not the bomb, but like the laser shooting everywhere go off 
and be replaced by his cup of assholic Cardassian tea, <laughs> shaking his cup, having the bomb, the laser pew pew show right back up again in the exact place. And I mean, what a fucking moment. Um, and what I love is this whole time he's the voice of the station. Attention, Bajoran workers is his pompous Ducat voice mechanized to echoing throughout the station as he has this uh, complete oppressive total presence on the station that continues to speak even after he's gone and he expects it to just work that way and so the glorious moment where he realizes that he too is trapped and he's, and he's lecturing too is trapped. himself like himself yeah like the, the video of him is lecturing him on his own cowardice exactly and then the system and that they had a backup but in the thing that's just so telling about i never thought they'd do this to me is the fact that that the cardassian government built in a backup system video that's telling him that they're destroying the station because he's a failure and he should be ashamed that it has a different cardassian telling him this which is why it's sort of like there is always someone above you in that, like, you think you're in charge, but like the way these systems work, like th those kinds of control will be used against you as well. Yeah. And I mean, also like when it becomes increasingly clear that at least some of those videos must be deep fakes. Yeah. That like he's yeah. surprised by what he's himself, he himself is saying, like he did not sit down for a video session. Like those were constructed. I just, I think like, it really is a great civil defense. I called it by its right name just in time for the end of the show. Civil defense really is a great indication of how Golducott views the space station as his body. Um, it is like it speaks of his voice. It has his codes built into it. He is enforcing them even when he's gone. And that is why he fully expects to always be there, to always be able to come back. And then when he tries to teleport off, he realizes he's trapped there because this is a trap. This like the, the, the control and the chauvinism that he's constructed is itself also a trap. So we got a great listener question from Twitter, uh, specifically from Shion de Sarkar asking, who is Dukat's closest political analog? Yeah, um, and because we were joking about how he's a Mitt Romney looking motherfucker, and he really is a Mitt Romney looking motherfucker. But it doesn't just because he looks like him doesn't mean he is him. And there's plenty of bad guys to go around. Romney is his um, own flavor of colonialist nightmare. But I don't really exactly. He's more of an anoprentine. That's an interesting thought. Maybe we'll get back to that when we talk about anoprentine. But I could see that. So I, you know, I was struggling with this because like it's easy to talk about who his like philosophical come you know, th thoughts are like, there was a piece of me who was like, well, he definitely has a Nixonian des desire to be loved by and like a an inability to accept that he that he can never be loved. But I think in some ways, the way he is interested in always packaging this like kinder, gentler, the kinder, gentler occupation. Like that sure sounds like George W. Bush and Tony Blair to me. I definitely can see that. I really gave this question a lot of thought. Um, and I was somewhat thinking of it in 90s terms. Um, and mm. so um, Tony Blair was one of the ones that very much came to yeah. mind there. Yeah. Um, but I also feel like, um, you know, you look at the um, sort of the major hawkish 
political figures of the time and I'd need to go back and look at, you know, research uh, 90s American and British foreign policy a little more to get some of those names. But it's it's sort of indicative of that overall. But the sort of contemporary sort of now figure that I was thinking of as being very Ducat-like is Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley. Um, both because he looks like a lizard and, um, because, um, he's got this sense of his own importance and his, his, he's one of those people, like you hear him talk and you're like, he really believes all of the shit coming out of his mouth. And he believes all of the things he's saying are truly representative of what it means to be American. Like that guy, for whatever else you want to say about him, and there's a lot to say, that guy is a true believer in his own version of patriotism. Like, yeah, he believes yeah. in his heart that he is saving America for Americans. And, like, there's something sort of tragically admirable almost about that in a way that, like, I think speaks to why Ducat is such a an engaging character as well is like for all that like his really steadfast worldview is horrifying and speaks to like not only the worst of human instincts but like the worst of our own instincts as um even more at the time when the show was made than now, like really over, you know, people living in a worldwide superpower and gaining the benefit of that sort of coincidence of birth in a lot of ways. And so looking at the kind of politician who is abhorrent, but also isn't speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And really those abhorrent views are coming from a deep belief. One, you know, one of, one of the things that I was thinking when I was watching the cult episode is that that's, that's the first episode where he admits that he had anything to do with Bajoran's dying. So maybe the Paw Wraiths did show him something about himself. I feel like as much as like the Paw Wraiths did nothing to shake his own basic sense of who he is. He he did, in a weird, creepy, awful way, grow a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, I was just like, he finally admitted that he had something to do with Bajoran's dying. And I think the, I think the other thing that I really, that I think he learned in the cult episode was, you know, I think he, the, the pills that he provided, the, um, the, the suicide pills he provided his followers with. He never intended on taking them, but he really did think that they were going to work the way the Obsidian Order said they would. And the fact that they actually did not provide for a, a, a painless, bodiless death, I think may have been a moment where he realized that he, the, the, the Cardassian system was also playing him. It's possible. Right? Yeah. Like, they, like he'd been sold that this would be this great painless death. And now that he sees someone actually use it, he's like oh, actually, that would not have been pleasant. Like, he's bought into the propaganda of the state in ways that he just didn't think it would ever come around to hurting him. Really, I think where we're getting is, like, just the reason why we wanted so badly to talk about Gold Ducat is because he's an absolutely fascinating character that we love watching. He's 
definitely irredeemable and the show doesn't really attempt to redeem him. And when it does, it gets the rug pulled out from under it in a way that's really satisfying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's necessary because like I said, people will disturbingly enough just fall for the self narrative of the charismatic person who makes the note, who makes a charismatic white coated man who like, I played by a white man um, who, uh, you know, makes his own case and like expects people to believe his own lines. So thank you guys for for hanging on with us. We have some exciting interest episodes coming that we'll be recording soon. And um, thank you for sticking with the podcast through the year that we've had. And thank you for encouraging our little pandemic podcast project and helping us feel motivated to continue and to bring it back and to bring more guests on and um, not just see it as like the two of us sitting around on our computers talking to each other like we always do. (laughs) Because we do a lot of research and a lot of work matching the guests to the topic. There's uh, so many smart fans of the show out there, um, but not everybody has expertise around specific kinds of areas. So we, we spent a lot of time working on getting to be the right fit. It matters a lot. Um, so we've got some great ones coming up. Um, if you want to get in touch, you know, we uh, I'm on Twitter a little bit too much. E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. And we also have an email address, which you can use, which I keep forgetting, which we will check. Deep Space Dive Podcast at gmail.com. And well, yeah, when I'm not doing Deep Space Dive podcast, it's Graphic Policy Radio right here talking about the intersection of comics, politics, and social change. I've got stuff coming up about the Eternals, finally, um, and some deeper looks at different comics. And the recent uh, Hawkeye series is going to have some guests talking about that. And Sarah, where can folks get up with your work? Well, I am on Twitter, far too little for Alana's taste, at Padashah, which is P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-T. Um, I also have a website where I put my writing about figure skating, film, and whatever I f- else I feel like writing about. And that is thefinersports.com. Several of my ice skating friends have been making noise about how I need to just go watch, watch uh, Russian nationals, the Russian national figure skating championships, and make some comments about that. So there might actually be content on there. And uh, beyond that, that's kind of where I am on the internet. Um And we want to thank you for listening and remind you of what Odo says. If you really want to resolve your sexual tension with Kira, stop kidnapping her and just take her to the holodeck to listen to some standards. (laughs) 